The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. Page 559 if you're in the Blue Bibles. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers... If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Thank you, Robin. Well, I've had an epiphany. Any of you ever said that before? Anyone? Yep, one. Occasionally. Epiphany is one of those words 
that was popular when I was a teenager. Uh, At that stage of life, it can sometimes earn you the respect from your friends if you can learn big words like that and then uh, show people that you know the meaning of them and use them correctly. Now, kids who are in this morning, I've got a tricky question to begin this morning for you. Uh, Does anybody know what epiphany means? I did not expect any of you to say yes, just so you know. But I'll give you a clue. Have any of you guys ever read, uh, looked at cartoons or comic books or something, and you see a character who has a little thought bubble appear over their head, and, and it's got like a light bulb in it? Have you ever seen that? Or something like that? Yeah? Yep. Well, when you see that, that is basically trying to communicate the same thing. The character is, is effectively saying, I've had an epiphany. And so an epiphany, when pe- most people say it today, what is meant by that is that they've just had a sudden realization. So it means that they've now thought of something that they did not know before uh, or perhaps had, had a realization of something that they did not know before. And so in that sense, the meaning of epiphany is basically the same as that of a revelation. And as Christians, we are people of God's revelation. To be people of God's revelation means that God has revealed Himself and aspects of Himself to us. And because Peter, in his epistle, calls the church a holy nation, in 1 Peter 2.9, that's how you end up with this morning's sermon title. We are a revelation nation. But why that title? Our passage this morning is about spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, and at the very heart of these two gifts that we see of prophecy and tongues is that very issue of God's revelation. Why did Paul urge the Corinthians to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy? And how do we live that out today? Well, let me pray as we come to the word of the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your world, in your word, and in your Son. May we have spiritual eyes to see you. May we have spiritual ears to hear you as you speak through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the beginning of this chapter, I hope you have it uh, feel free to have it open in your Bibles, uh, in your laps this morning, is coming off the back of the famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. And so as Paul introduces what he is going to say in this chapter, his first words set the tone again for everything that comes after. Pursue love, he says. Pursue love in everything that we will be exploring in this chapter this morning and next Sunday. Remember this essential peace. Without love, it's not even worth talking about spiritual gifts. And as we saw several weeks ago in verse 7 of chapter 12, the reason for this is pretty straightforward. Gifts are for the common good. That is their purpose. That is the reason they exist. If you want to exercise spiritual gifts because it gives you some kind of benefit, then you've missed their primary purpose. 
But God certainly doesn't want us to despise or devalue spiritual gifts. And so after making it extremely clear in all of chapter 13 to the Corinthians that without love, spiritual gifts are useless, Paul then in the next breath says, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Because as he's already made very clear, spiritual gifts are gifts from God through the Holy Spirit to his church so that they might be built up. Before camp last week, we spent a couple of weeks looking at the topic of whether some spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous gifts, have ceased or continue. Uh, If you missed those or have any questions about that, I encourage you to go and listen to those on our church's website. And I said then that I think that those uh, miraculous gifts that were associated with Jesus and the apostles' ministry, they ceased when the last apostle died. And I said uh, that this is an area where faithful Christians can and do disagree and they get along just fine. However, I also said that it is nonetheless still an important issue to think about, an important piece of doctrine. Uh, American pastor and author Gavin Ortland classifies doctrinal issues, which is something popularly known as uh, theological triage. In the same way that you triage many issues in the emergency department, you can do the same with theological matters. And he gives these four levels, essential, urgent, important, and unimportant. He's not suggesting that any doctrine is unimportant, but that some are unimportant to church life and to cooperation with other Christians. Now, I think that's a helpful way to think about doctrinal matters, and it helps us locate where this particular issue is of spiritual gifts and whether they have ceased or not. You see, we place that, as I mentioned then, in the third level of importance, but not in the fourth level of unimportant. You see, something in the fourth category would be, for example, uh, whether Christians should homeschool their children. Uh, you, You might have good reasons one way or the other. Again, not suggesting that's unimportant, but in terms of church life and cooperation, that that's something in the fourth category. You will likely never hear a sermon on just that topic in our church. Interestingly, Ortland himself actually puts the issue of spiritual gifts in level three, but depending on the situation, he could also put it in level two. And I agree with him on this. One of the reasons is right here in verse one. Because not only does Paul say, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, he says, especially that you may prophesy. You see, if the gift of prophecy has indeed ceased then what do we do with Paul's instruction here? He's holding up prophecy as the one to strive for above all the others in this chapter. Well, even though prophecy isn't a gift that is accessible to us today, this passage still has great significance for us, as does all of Scripture. The heart of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is still the heart of the body of Christ today. And I think that can be summarized to us in two instructions. One, build up the church, and two, build with the Word. One, build up the church, two, build with the Word. Let's look at the first point, first instruction, build up the church. Now, I hope this isn't sounding like a broken record. Uh, Kids, if you don't know what I mean by a broken, does anyone know what a broken, when we say it's like a broken record, do you know what that means? 
Anyone? No? It basically means uh, that when somebody is repeating themselves over and over and over again, it's like a broken record. Uh, now, there's a reason, there's a background as to why that is the case, and I'll happily tell you all about what that is and, uh, you know, the way we used to play music before phones were invented. And by phone, I mean the devices that we... Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Uh, but that's what I'm saying. Hope it doesn't sound like it's, it's just overly repetitious. Well, at least we've had a little bit of a break. We've had a topical break and we've had camp in between. So hopefully this message doesn't seem stale or repetitive to you. But I make it again because it is absolutely essential to this chapter, as it has been to all of these chapters from chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. You see, if chapters 12 and 13 didn't make it clear enough to you how strongly Paul is emphasizing the importance of the church loving and building one another up, then look closely at this passage that we're looking at this morning. You see, even when Paul is talking about the specific gifts of prophecy and tongues, he repeatedly sounds the distinct notes of building up the church. Look at verses 5, 12, and 19 so that the church may be built up. That's the purpose for it. Strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 19, he says, he would rather speak five words in my mind. He would rather speak words that build up the church in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. You see, it is impossible to miss the fact that Paul is saying prophecy is better than tongues because prophecy builds up the church. This is crucial to understanding this chapter, especially if you have continuationist leanings. Let's read from verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. These words are often used to support the idea that tongues has a personal benefit. They build up the person who speaks them because they speak not to man, but to God. And Paul is saying that he speaks to God because God is the only one who can understand what that person is saying. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But wherever you land on this issue, we must realize that when Paul mentions this side aspect of speaking in tongues, it is mentioned as a side benefit. You see, sometimes people read these verses and think that Paul is giving us a full explanation of the gift of tongues and its uses. And so they read it, take those statements at face value, and then build a theology of tongues all on top of it. Now, this is one of the reasons why I held the continuationist view for a long time. As I read these verses, they lined up with what I understood tongues to be and the way that they benefited my own life. I felt that personal edification. But Paul has a very clear purpose in mind when he brings these up. He is intentionally contrasting tongues with prophecy and showing why prophecy is greater. Notice that contrast in these verses. The one who speaks in a tongue, no one understands him. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding. You see, every time Paul talks about tongues being a good thing, he immediately follows it with showing why prophecy is better. 
So at best, tongues have a side benefit of building up the person speaking them. But Paul's major point is showing why they are not as great as prophecy and should not be as highly prized as the Corinthians were prizing them. Why? Because they don't build up the church. And it's worth noting that this is true of most, if not all, spiritual gifts. I've certainly felt the the personal benefit of teaching God's Word. I've been encouraged whenever I've encouraged others. I've often found comfort and consolation in the very same Word that I'm encouraging and consoling others with. I imagine you've probably felt the same. You've felt blessed when serving, when giving, which of course makes sense. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So this is an, an essential part of the Christian life. We expect this. But such personal benefits of spiritual gifts, they are side benefits. You know, if such personal benefits of the gifts did not exist, then the gifts would still be doing what God gives them to do. They would still build up the church. And so it was with tongues. That's why Paul moves on to the instruction in verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Again, sometimes people read that first instruction and think that Paul is saying that we should all speak in tongues. Rather than seeing what Paul is trying to do in this whole chapter, they isolate these instructions as though they are the main thing that Paul wants us to grasp. But in the same way that Paul wants everyone to be single, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he is here making a rhetorical point. See, Paul's, Paul's, when he says that in, in chapter 7, he's not suggesting that everyone should be single. Hey, let's let the Christian community just completely die out. No, he's... He's he's making a rhetorical point. Paul is carefully balancing his two priorities in, in this chapter, chapter 14, of elevating the essential building up nature of spiritual gifts and also at the same time not discarding tongues. He wants to show that tongues are still an important gift and valuable, but not as much as they think. And he does so by saying something positive about tongues and then showing how much better prophecy is. And every time, it's because prophecy builds up the church. Brothers and sisters, is this how you think about your spiritual gifts? Is this how you order your desires for these manifestations of God's Spirit. Paul says that the Corinthians should earnestly desire prophecy because he knows that it is of such greater value to the church. It builds up, it it encourages, it consoles. And as I said, even though that particular gift is no longer available to us, words of the same caliber still are. The law of the land in our revelation nation is found right here in these words. 
do we desire to build up the church with them? We'll come back to that a bit later. Paul continues to strengthen his point by giving us an illustration involving musical instruments. My favorite kind of illustration. Let's read from verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct note, who will get ready for battle? I should have gotten Robin to bring the flute this morning and give us a demonstration. But unfortunately, I did not think of that in time. Now, just a point of definition here. It seems likely that Paul is referring to the same two things in verse 6. You can see there, in alternating fashion, revelation is the same thing as prophecy, and knowledge is the same thing as teaching. And we'll see the term revelation again in next week's passage. Now, I used to love, as a kid, reading Asterix comics. Uh, and one of my favorite names of one of the characters... Uh, does, kids, do any of you guys read Asterix? Got a few? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and adults. Amen. Come on. One of, one of my, the, my favorite names of one of the characters is Cacophonix. Do you guys know who Cacophonix is? Yep. What's, what do we know about him? He's a bard. What's a bard, Beck? Not sure? Does anyone know what a bard is? Yeah, that's right. So the bard is like the town musician and singer. But what is it about Cacophonix that we know and his ability to be a bard and how good he is at it? Yeah, we're getting, we're getting one of these. That's right. He was the town bard, but he was terrible at his job. He, he would often end up at the end of the book, as you can see in that picture on the right, tied up with his mouth gagged. And you can see in that picture on the left there, see those musical notes rising from him? They're, they're all jagged and wonky and terrible to indicate to you how bad he really is, right? And for that reason, his name was actually a, is actually a very appropriate one. A cacophony, if you weren't aware, is a mess of sounds without any clear tone or note. That's what a cacophony is. And that is Paul's point here in this illustration. If you cannot hear a distinct note, then an instrument is useless. Cacophonix and his harp playing and his singing was a cacophony. And if the bugle, which rouses everybody for battle, can't play the revali, then nobody will prepare to go to war. And Paul makes clear the point of his illustration here in verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Some will say that here is evidence that tongues is ecstatic because it's unintelligible. But Paul's language here matches the illustration. By being unintelligible, he simply means that it is unclear and unable to be understood. Kung hindi ka marunong magtagalog, hindi mo maintindihan ang sinasabi ko. What I just said was, if you don't speak Tagalog, you won't understand what I'm saying. Does anyone speak Tagalog? No, there you go. Oh, a couple. Yeah. Now imagine if what I actually said was something of far greater and eternal importance. 
if you speak another language that nobody else within hearing distance can understand, then the only one who can make sense of what you're saying in that moment is God. You are just speaking into the air. There might as well be no one in the room. Paul's thought here flows on naturally to his next point from verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. As I mentioned in the topical sermon about this, I think Paul here is elaborating on the gifts of tongues, describing them as the languages of the world. He's moved from illustrating the point of tongues necessarily being unintelligible when the hearer doesn't speak the same language to now making the point that all languages have meaning and are communicating something. But if the hearer can't make sense of the message, then it is lost. Hence Paul's concluding instruction in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. So with yourselves, he says. Don't desire a spiritual gift that would only have benefit to people who understand the language of your gift. In this verse is a hint as to perhaps why the Corinthians prized the gift of tongues so highly. They were eager for manifestations of the Spirit. They were eager for things that they could see, that they could touch, that they could experience, that they could point to and boast in and say, see, look how gifted I am. Look at this manifestation of the Holy Spirit in my life. And Paul redirects what was partially a good desire. It's good that they desire spiritual gifts, but they've missed the point. Strive to excel in building up the church. So how do we do this? If prophecy and tongues are no longer accessible to us today. Well, at the very least, it's worth noting what Paul considers here to be the more mature spirituality. The more spiritually mature person is not the one who can impress with their supposed manifestations of the Spirit. The more spiritually mature person is not the one who, speaks, who seeks spiritual gifts for the purpose of personal benefit. No, the more spiritually mature person is the one who strives to excel in building up the church and does so by seeking and serving with the spiritual gifts that God has given them. Do you strive to excel in spiritual gifts that build up your church with the Word? Does your own study and exploration of the Word stay mostly in your own head and heart? Or do you seek opportunities to encourage your brothers and sisters and to build them up with it? Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone will have the gift of teaching. But in the same way that Paul wished that all would prophesy, so I wish that we all would earnestly desire the gift available to us of interpreting, of applying, of encouraging one another with the word that God has given us. And to be clear, this need not look like, you know, one person telling another person what a certain verse says. You know, sometimes we just think of teaching as jug to mug. You just got to put that water into the 
receptacle. Yes, that is certainly part of teaching. And there's a reason God gives the church elders and overseers those whose primary role is to teach. But you know, it's amazing how often I've found that the thing that is most encouraging and implicable to a person that I'm talking to is not some theological truth or verse that I know that I've studied and and really tried to make sense of that's related to the topic at hand, but the very passages or verses that I was reading that morning for my devotion becomes a source of encouragement to the person I'm speaking to. That is something that we can all continue to strive to increase at, to get better at. And you know, it's amazing how many times I'm encouraged and built up by simply sharing the journey with you about the things that you are discovering, about the things that God is is doing in your life to grow and shape you through His Word. That is mutual building up. Brothers and sisters, may we excel in gifts that build up the church. And you know, this can be done in other ways. Serving in Praise Factory teaches our children the Word so that they may know, love, and follow Jesus. And that in turn builds up the church. Not only that, it is a blessing to the parents who can better concentrate in our gathered time as a church. That builds up the church. And even though it may not seem like those kinds of things are directly building up and encouraging and consoling the church, it still does so indirectly. By using spiritual gifts that aren't directly related to the revelation of God, you are still indirectly building them up. And that takes us to our second point about what we build with. Build with the Word. Kids, Uh, Which material do you think would build a stronger house? If you had the choice, would you choose cardboard or stone? Stone. Well, I think that's fairly unanimous. We know that cardboard is a bad idea to build houses out of, right? I mean, you've built houses out of cardboard, haven't you? Yeah. You know, I read last week uh, about a company in the Netherlands that builds houseboats out of cardboard. Can you believe that? My first thought was, well, I guess they don't have cyclones like we do in in Darwin, right? But my second thought after reading it a bit more was, oh, they actually have a wooden layer on them, which kind of makes a bit more sense. I don't think cardboard on its own would work, especially on water, right? Well, Paul's concern throughout this chapter, as we've seen, is that the Corinthian Christians build one another up, and he wants them to build with something that will last. He wants them to build with the Word. Which is why he tells them that if they have the gift of tongues, they should desire another gift which will make it a useful gift. Interpretation. Let's read from verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
sorry, I went back. Verse 13 in this is, uh, is clear enough. If you're speaking a language that no one can understand, then in order for it to be helpful, someone should be able to interpret, right? If, if I could not have interpreted my Tagalog to you before, then that would have been a mystery for everybody. If they had the gift of tongues, they should pray that they would receive the gift of interpretation as well. But what does the rest of this verse mean? Well, once again, these verses are pointed to in defense of an ecstatic language of tongues, but the understanding of how tongues works can easily be applied to both views. After all, what we don't see in Acts chapter 2 and in the rest of the book is people suddenly being able to hold conversations in a language that they did not know before. We have the day of Pentecost. What we see is the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers and then they begin to declare the mighty works of God in a whole range of foreign languages. And so both the cessationists and continuationists can agree about what is happening when somebody is speaking in tongues. They may both agree that it is a work of God's Spirit that doesn't involve the mind the way that speaking in a language normally does. So that when I spoke some Tagalog to you before, that's because I have you know, neurons and networks in my brain that enable me to be able to construct that language and then produce it for you and understand it. What Paul is saying here is that the Spirit works in such a way in the gift of tongues that the person is not engaging the way that I did when I spoke Tagalog to you before. And so both continuationists and cessationists can agree on how that works. The main point of difference is what that language actually is. And either way, the point remains. Unless a revelation from God is spoken in a language that the hearer can understand, then the revelation is useless to them. Let's read from verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The word for outsider there in verse 16 has its roots in the meaning of a person who is unskilled. And so the ESV translates it as outsider and the NIV as inquirer, as somebody who uh, is, is wanting to know more about the Christian faith. I think that captures the sense of what Paul is talking about. You see, this is likely referring to somebody who is either not a believer or somebody who is very young in the faith. And we're going to see them later on in this passage. The point is that it is somebody who is not a regular member of the Corinthian church. And they clearly don't speak the, lung, the, the tongue of the tongue's speaker. They can't say amen to what's being said. Here again, we see that the tongue speaker might be built up themselves by declaring the works of God in a foreign language, but no one else is being built up because they don't understand it. And Paul, in verse 18, once again employs his pastoral wisdom to balance that fine line of rebuking the Corinthians for their obsession with tongues, but on the other hand, not disregarding it. And this is made evident once again in what he says immediately after. 
even though he speaks in tongues more than all of them, nevertheless, he would rather speak five words with his mind. 10,000 is such a big number, it really emphasizes the gap between the two. And Paul is saying to be absolutely clear, the message of God's revelation and therefore the gift of tongues is pointless if the hearer cannot understand it. And praise God that even without the gift of tongues in operation today, this worked, this work carries on and it continues. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, God came down to the human race and brought judgment on them by scattering them all across the earth, creating multiple languages and peoples. And now here in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, a mark of God's redemption for the human race is His bringing together of people from all across the earth to hear about His mighty works through Jesus, His Son, in a language that they all can understand. You know, this event this, on the day of Pentecost is symbolic of the fact that the new covenant in Jesus is now open and available to all people of all nations of every tongue. Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, rather than coming down to bring judgment as God did at Babel, instead came down to receive God's judgment on our behalf and purchase our redemption. We are a people and a nation now defined by God's revelation of redemption in Jesus. That is now our citizenship. And for that reason, we work hard to bridge cultural and linguistic gaps with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Primarily in our local church and by extension with all believers all across the earth. This is something that I hope we as a church can continue to do with the very people whose culture and language is significantly different from the average English-speaking Australian who live right next door to us. My mother-in-law, who is visiting this week, she said that you know, Darwin is such a different country in terms of its landscape and its flora and its fauna. But it's also so incredible because of the many indigenous Australians that we get to interact with regularly. Yes, there are many across the country, but we have, have such close proximity with many more. Please continue to pray that God would grant us more opportunities and we would take every opportunity to befriend and to share the gospel with our indigenous neighbors, to invite them to faith in Jesus, to invite them into God's family. And pray that God would raise up from within our church and in other local churches around Darwin, people who are passionate about translating God's revelation into their mother tongue, into a language that they may understand. And may we also continue to pray and consider whether God might be sending us to other places of many different tongues all across the earth. May we build with the word, translated and interpreted, so that the hearers may understand and be built up. Well, that leads nicely into our final section of this passage where Paul displays that same concern for people to not just hear the works of God, 
but to experience the work of His Spirit, convicting their hearts through His revelation. He begins first by calling back to the same charge He gave them in chapter 3 about not being spiritual infants. Paul clarifies his first sentence by emphasizing the same thing that Jesus does. Entering the kingdom of heaven must be done with faith like a child. There is a humble and innocent, childlike trusting of God that marks all true and mature faith. Sorry, that comes from Matthew 18, verse 3. Kids... I've said it to you before, let me say it again. You can turn to Jesus today. You are not too young to do that. You do not have to wait to become an adult to turn away from the kingdoms of this world and to turn to Jesus in faith. Jesus welcomes you into his arms and into his kingdom. And so this is why Paul says more specifically, uh, be infants in evil. Paul does not want the Corinthians to use this as an excuse to stunt their spiritual growth, as he made extremely clear in chapter 3. You see, this whole book so far uh, has shown that the Corinthians were not thinking rightly about many spiritual things. They were adults in evil, but they were infantile in their thinking. They were the complete opposite of what Paul is saying. And so Paul implies that the way that they're thinking about spiritual gifts right now, and especially tongues, is immature. I think it's ironic that he does this, he says this, and then he goes on to write a few verses that will just baffle Christians for many centuries. Has anybody ever been confused about these next verses? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Okay. Let's read from verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. You you see the the difficulty. Paul is saying, here's a sign for unbelievers, but then he doesn't say there are. Now, I distinctly remember when studying this passage in college, I had my own interpretation of what this meant, and I'm pretty sure I had no understanding of what the professor actually said about it in my class. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But this quote comes from, as we read earlier this morning, Isaiah chapter 28, and especially in verses 11 and 12. You see, it's not a word-for-word translation, but it's certainly close enough that it is obvious that Paul is quoting this section. And the context of this chapter is that God is telling Israel that He will judge His people for their wickedness and for their rebellion against Him by using the Assyrians to come and conquer them. And thus, judgment will come by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. It's important to recognize this context. 
You see, these two verses are often used to justify the story that I told a couple of weeks ago and that I often hear among continuationists. You know, the ones about people hearing ecstatic tongues and then somebody interpreting and then somebody else hearing that in an actual language. Hence, tongues are a sign. And in my class, that's how I understood this verse. That's how I expressed it to my lecturer. This is the kind of sign that tongues are to unbelievers. Now, hear me out. If an event like that results in somebody's conversion, praise God. Uh, Regardless of what is actually going on there, all Christians can celebrate when a person is born again into the kingdom. But we ought always, always to seek to discern truth by letting God's Spirit lead us through His revelation in Scripture. All our experiences are ultimately and should be ultimately in submission to God's infallible word. And so that's why it's so crucial to understand the original context of Paul's quotation here and to think about why he might be quoting this verse to make the very point that he's making. And for this reason, my understanding now, it would be interesting to know how much of it is actually the same as what my lecturer said all those years ago, is that Paul uses the term sign here in this verse uh, to refer to tongues as a negative sign for unbelievers. He's not talking about it as a sign where an unbeliever can can see that and witness it and think, wow, isn't this amazing? God is incredible. But no, as something which is negative for them. I think it's the only interpretation that can make sense of verse 22. We get thrown off of this because, you know, we rightly think of the term sign in a positive sense. Most of the time in Scripture, it is talking about Jesus and apostles' signs that, that backed up and verified their claims about who he was. But this is not the only way that the word sign is used, and it's not the only way Paul uses it. And so in this verse, in verse 22, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And Paul quotes these verses from Isaiah where he skips over the middle of verse 12 to make sure he gets to the end part of the sentence where it says, even then they will not listen to me. Yet they would not hear. Therefore, surely what Paul means is that the sign of tongues and speaking in a foreign language will result in uh, is an unbeliever not listening to the Lord. When Paul uses the word sign here, he is using it negatively and not positively. And this is confirmed by what he says next. Verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? You see the point? If an outsider or an inquirer or unbeliever comes into the gathering of the church and everybody is speaking in a language or languages that they cannot understand, then they're going to think, oh, this is, this is just crazy. I don't even know what's going on here. They are hearing a foreign tongue and do not hear the revelation of the Lord. Just like the Ephraimites of Isaiah 28. Unlike in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, where people from all over the world were in Jerusalem, this local gathering of the Corinthian church did not have the same amount of multicultural visitors. The sign results in them not hearing the word of the Lord. 
And this is why it is so important for our church gatherings to be intelligible. I remember hearing a story, I can't remember where I heard it from, but uh, it was a reliable source, about a pastor in an Arab-speaking country. And he decided to uh, stop preaching in the more formal Arabic that is usually used for public speaking. He switched to the more common Arabic, which is used by people in everyday life. And he did this because even though his preaching would now be less impressive, would now seem uh, less, uh, less amazing to the people, it would actually be more intelligible for his hearers. And his reputation took a hit because of that. But it was the right move. What good is dazzling preachers if the hearers do not hear a message that they can grasp with their hearts and with their minds? This is why preachers labor to make our expositions of Scripture clear and structured and easy to follow. This is why we have points and why we have titles and why we try to make them memorable. Of course, we, we won't always get that right, and I'm thankful that you uh, show me grace uh, when I don't get that right, when I don't do that well. But please know that if something I preach is difficult to understand, it is not because I'm trying to sound impressive or trying to make things deliberately difficult. We want our church gatherings to be intelligible, both to believer and unbeliever alike. And this is so important because it's not just the believer who is built up by the revelation of God. The unbeliever is also convicted about who God is and the state of their heart. Let's read from verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face... He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I understand the definition of prophecy in the New Testament to have the same definition as the Old Testament. That is, if a person prophesies, they are speaking the very words of God. Those may be words that predict something that is going to happen, or they might be words that a person needed to hear in that exact very moment for whatever reason. God is telling them that message. Those seem to be the kinds of words that Paul is talking about in this chapter. Regardless of what the words describe, the key part of the definition is that they are God's unfailing, trustworthy, without error words. Prophetic words are just as much God's words as the words we have in the Bible. And so if this gift was still in operation at the time of Paul's writing, it's not hard to see that if an outsider or an unbeliever were to come to the gathering of the church and to hear the very words of God, then they would be convicted by them and fall down in worship. They would recognize that God truly is the God that they worship and, and celebrate and, and talk about in their gatherings is the true God. Now, did Paul think that this would always happen? In every situation, when somebody hears the Word of God? Well, certainly throughout Scripture, that didn't happen. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see that Paul himself doesn't have a 100% strike rate of seeing uh, people become Christians whenever he uh, preached. And Paul's 
letters talk about the importance of faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel and leaving the growth to God, as he did earlier in the letter, where he said, I watered it, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's not, there's not some kind of magic formula in speaking God's words that suddenly means people come to faith. No, Paul's point, as it often is in his letters, is that it is the Word of God that discloses the secrets of our hearts. It is the Word of God that can save a person and take them from being one who suppresses the truth to one who rejoices in the truth and worships God. In verse 25, Paul alludes to Isaiah 45:14, which is further down from Isaiah 28. And the context of that chapter is God redeeming His people Israel and the surrounding nations coming to them to declare that God is truly among them. And that is the difference between tongues and prophecy. The Word of God, spoken so that hearers understand it, builds up believers and it convicts unbelievers. But what does that mean for us today? If the gifts of tongues and prophecy have ceased, how are we to apply this passage? Well, the first thing to note is that both interpreted tongues and prophecy both belong in this same category of God's revealing Himself to His people. Those words are God's words. And so even though we may not hear God's words directly from the mouths of His prophets today, we still have... God's very words in the Bible. And as such, we can continue to declare and to proclaim whenever we gather the Word of God, which is exactly what we do. We read the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach and we teach the Bible, we encourage, we build up, we console, and we convict with the Bible. This is why the doctrine of sola scriptura, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is so important. The, scripture, the, doc, the doctrine that this word is alone our rule of faith, our, 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 uh, the, the rule by which every other authority must submit to. To quote J.I. Packer, who himself was paraphrasing John Owen, if private revelations agree with scripture, they are needless. And if they disagree, they are false. The Bible is God's sure revelation. And we are a revelation nation. In all of our interactions and in our encouragement and in our rebuke and in our consoling, we must continually assess everything through the Word of God. But this isn't a, a who can be most right with the Bible contest. This is not a war where we try and, try and one-up each other on our, our reading of Scripture and say, hey, I know better than you, I know more than you. No, that's not how it works. That's not how God intends for it to occur. This is instead a team marathon where we keep handing one another cups of water that have been drawn from the well of life. I can't tell you how many times when my own understanding of God has been challenged and eventually changed through the influence of brothers and sisters that have, helped, that have helped me to see where my reading of God's Word has missed the mark, where I've understood, misunderstood what God is communicating in His Word. 
this by both people I know in conversations that I've had with them and also people I don't, whose teaching I've read, whose things I have listened to. Was I upset and annoyed that they knew their Bibles better than me? Did I arrogantly assume that they didn't know what they were talking about at first, even though it was clear that my views of Scripture had been formed with a far less careful reading of the Bible as theirs? In my sin? Yeah, you bet. It's a hard thing to do, right? It's challenging for all of us when we are confronted with things that challenge our very thoughts and assumptions and things that we hold near and dear. But was God gracious to me and humble me before His Word and before them? Thankfully, yes. Submitting to the revealed Word of God and letting His Spirit lead us through His Word is what makes us a revelation nation. And it is through this that God nourishes our thirsty souls. He stirs up our spiritual affections with greater love for Him and increases our godliness. As Packer also says in that book, the giving of spiritual understanding is not, of course, an end in itself. It is always to be seen and valued as a means of something further, knowing and enjoying God. I pray that that would be an ongoing mark of our life together at ERBC. Brothers and sisters, let us continue to strive to excel in gifts that build up the body. If you're here this morning, and perhaps this is not the kind of thing that you normally do, or the kind of place that you hang out on a, on a Sunday morning, you might even call yourself an outsider or an inquirer, to the church. Someone who might even be interested in the Christian faith. If that's you, then I hope that you will continue to inquire and continue to be interested in these words of God. I hope that I've made clear this morning that God has indeed revealed Himself to us and His revelation can be found in the pages of this book. But you see, this book is not just a book of rules and instructions and propositional truths. It is a book that has at its centerpiece the central character, God Himself. It begins by revealing to us that in the beginning there was God. And God created out of His love and good pleasure everything that has ever existed, everything that currently exists, everything that will exist, including you and me. But the tragedy of the story is that we as human beings, instead of worshipping God and loving God with our whole hearts as He created us to do, chose instead to worship ourselves and the things that God, and the things that God created rather than the Creator Himself. We broke His law. And so sin entered the world and the penalty for our sin was and still is the righteous wrath of God. But God was not done. His plan of redemption was 
foreshadowed right from the beginning and would reach its epic climax in Jesus, the God-man, the Word made flesh, who descended from heaven not to judge, but to save. He would be born of a virgin, Mary. He would live a life of perfect obedience as the only human being to have ever done so, a life that we never could live. He would die on a Roman cross, receiving the penalty of sin that we deserve, taking it upon himself so that we might, in exchange, receive his righteousness by turning from our sin and turning to him in faith. He would prove his defeat of death and our sin by being raised to life on the third day after his execution and ascending into heaven 40 days later where he remains until he comes again. And on that day, when he does come again, he will come down both to save and to judge. He will take up his bride, his church, all those who have believed in him for salvation, and he will bring final judgment upon all people. God has revealed himself to us most fully in Jesus. And he has given us the revelation of his words in Scripture. And in so doing, he reveals to us the state of our hearts and our greatest need. Friend, let me ask you today, do you know the secrets of your own heart? God knows them all. Each of us, when faced with this God who has revealed himself to us, has the choice of either trying to keep hiding those secrets from him, hiding our sins away from him, or having an epiphany and being convicted by his word, turning from worshipping created things to worshipping him the one among whom, uh, among us, he dwells. Would you consider your own heart and your need for God's salvation this morning? Brothers and sisters, God has given you an epiphany. And it is right here in his word. He has given us his revelation so that we might proclaim it to one another and proclaim it and declare it to a lost and dying world. As Peter would go on to say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Will you earnestly seek to excel in building up God's church with his word? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. 
that you have not left us without a sure word, without your revelation. We pray, Lord, that we would hear your word, we would understand, and that we would turn and trust and worship you. May we continue to do so ongoingly in the life of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.